Well, these samples are now 40 or 50 years old. Given the Yanomama life expectancy, they would have had to have been at least young adults when the blood was drawn. So very few of them would still be alive. Their relatives would be alive, and some were, young, were old enough at the time to remember the collection events. So they are basically requesting these returned on the behalf of their deceased relatives. Technically, I don't think I'm obliged to return them on that basis, but morally, I think that if they want these back and they don't want to be studied, then they should go back. Welcome to the Glock Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Samantha Thomas. We'll be your host today. Our show today is an exciting one. We have explosions, we have parasites, and we have lawyers. We have professional inquiries and an investigative journalist who wrote a shocking expose. We also have two men, James Neal and Napoleon Chagnon, who led research expeditions into the Amazon. You may think that the name Napoleon Chagnon sounds like the name of a Bond villain, but in reality... Actually, in reality, Napoleon Chagnon is, to some people, a world-class villain. To others, he's one of the greatest cultural anthropologists of the last 50 years. However, this is not the story of Napoleon Chagnon. He's in it a lot, but it's not the story about him. Instead, this is the story of a set of biological samples James Neal and Chagnon brought back from the Amazon more than 40 years ago. Our story is told by Dr. Kenneth Weiss. Dr. Weiss is a professor of anthropology at the Pennsylvania State University. He is also the curator of some of the samples collected by Dr. Neal. Here's Dr. Weiss explaining how he got involved. Uh, I was a graduate student at Michigan, and I did a postdoc at Michigan with someone named Jim Neal in the medical school, and he, along with Napoleon Chagnon, were doing the Yanomama studies. Jim Neal was the biomedical person and I think the guy that got most of the money to fund the studies. He collected the samples. He was interested in questions of genetic diversity in non-Western, small, isolated populations that looked perhaps similar to what our ancestral populations were like. And he collected these samples and did the genetic analysis that could be done. There were blood samples, among other biomedical observations that they did. And then he put them in a freezer because he didn't want to throw away what was left after they had done the kinds of genetics they could do in the 19, early 70s. And then when Jim Neal retired, he wanted to hand the samples over to somebody to take care of them because Michigan was going to throw them away. And although I had been a postdoc with Neal, my work was on the demography of the Yanomama, and I never actually went there. But I had known him because I did my postdoc with him. So he asked, would I take care of them? And I agreed to do that. Once that went to the National Cancer Institute, they wanted to look for whether or not isolated people that were exposed to leukemia or other cancer viruses. I don't think they found anything, but I don't know that. A guy named Doug Wallace, who's now at the University of Pennsylvania, is an expert in a kind of DNA called mitochondrial DNA, which he used initially to look at the population variation by looking at sequence variation in mitochondrial DNA but he's also interested in mitochondrial-related diseases. He has a set of these samples, and then I have a set. And this had been split and given 
for a few years to a guy named Andy Merriweather, who was at Michigan at one point and is now in Binghamton, but they've come back here. So there are only these three. So Dr. Weiss was a postdoc for James Neal, and when James Neal retired, Dr. Weiss took possession of a number of samples collected by Neal and Shagnon. In that last comment, Dr. Weiss touched briefly on why Dr. Neal was collecting samples from the Yanomami. We asked him to tell us what first Dr. Neal, and then later Dr. Weiss himself, used those samples for. Neal, was inter- he's a geneticist, and he's, his career was basically involved in looking at the effects of radiation. He was one of the main geneticists to set up and work in the Hiroshima and Nagasaki Foundation after the atomic bombings to see the effects of atomic bomb exposure to those who survived. A kind of a grim thing, but radiation was of great interest to people because we were being exposed to nuclear fallout from nuclear testing, x-rays, therapeutic radiation, and so on. And And along with other things that cause mutations, as radiation does, to which we were exposed, like various kinds of chemicals and pollutants and so on. The question was, how many mutations do these things cause in people that might lead to harmful fetuses in the future? And one question was, well, we needed a background estimate of how variable people were before they became uh, industrialized, living in these big populations with all these kinds of exposures. And the Yanomama were thought to be a good representation of isolated populations where we could look at how much genetic variation there was due to mutation in people not exposed to what we were exposed to. And so Shagnon went in and Neil with this idea that we're looking at sort of the representative of primitive humans in the way we lived in our ancestral history and the way that our population structure and our behavior had evolved and how that affected the amount of variation that we carried in populations genetically. They looked for protein variation in proteins that they knew how to identify with a method called gel electrophoresis, and um, there were a small number of proteins, like 40 or 50, that could be studied and that had been shown to vary among humans. And so that was a sample, uh, along with blood types, that uh, could be done. They're genetic stand-ins because they were known to be inherited, but they were not direct DNA tests. They were tests basically of protein variation or also of antibodies in the bodies, in the people that were sampled. But so it was only indirect genetics. When we got them, this is roughly 1990, I don't remember the exact date, we um, developed and worked on some methods that used PCR to do DNA sequencing directly. There are various issues. There weren't very many cells with DNA in them because of the way they had been collected in the field. And we developed methods for amplifying DNA from those few cells in each sample and sequencing it and looking for variation. And we did a little bit of that work. And then the problems arose and we stopped working on them. So Dr. Neal was interested in the basal level of genetic variability in isolated ancestral lake populations of people. But what about Shagnon? Ah, what indeed. Dr. Weiss ended that last comment with, and then the problems arose. That is a great bit of foreshadowing, and it leads us directly to the next character in our story, Napoleon Shagnon. Dr. Shagnon is a very polarizing anthropologist who is very vocal about some very strongly held opinions. That's a lot of varies. And, as you might imagine, that makes him something of a lightning rod for criticism. He was pushing an agenda, a sociobiological agenda, about differential fertility and violence as sort of the human condition, because that's what interested him. That ran him afoul of other anthropologists who wanted to see the noble savage, so to speak, that prior to our militant World War II kind of hyper-violent current society, that in primitive times... Before civilizations arose, we were basically living a kindlier way. 
So anthropologists who wanted to see life that way, they didn't like to see this hyperbiological, Darwinian, genetically based uh, way of understanding society. They wanted it to be more culture based rather than gene driven. So that set up conflict within anthropology over these worldviews, which were fundamental differences in how people saw things. And that naturally made people not like Shagnon if they were on the other side of these views. And that is the, the case still today. Dr. Shagnon wrote what is to most people the book on the Yanomami, titled Yanomamo, The Fierce People. In that book, Shagnon comes down very firmly on the side of competition rather than collaboration and fierce people rather than, as the phrasing goes, noble savages. He also inserts himself prominently in the story and writes with incredible flair. And there is a lot of flair in Napoleon Shagnon. He's the kind of guy who has compared himself to Indiana Jones and who has just Mm. written a new book titled Noble Savages, My Life Among Two Dangerous Tribes, The Yanomamo and the Anthropologist. That's quite a title. Dr. Shagnon obviously meant the comparison of himself and Indiana Jones as a good thing. However, anyone who's ever watched an Indiana Jones movie knows one thing, and that's that Indy is absolutely terrible at archaeology. And, as with Indiana Jones, there are holes you can pick in Dr. Shagnon's anthropological exploits. The Anamama had been studied, and that territory had been passed through by, missionized and settled uh, in various ways by Europeans since well before 1800. Von Humboldt went down into the same area and saw things that were, although he didn't call them Yanomama, were very clearly of the same kind of culture. Other anthropologists studying the Yanomama did not see all this violence. And they reported the Yanomama and described them as not being violent, particularly. Of course, all humans have violence, but that's, this was not a central characteristic. So not everyone saw the Yanomamo as violent. That alone does not mean that Shagnon was or is wrong. Cultures change over time, especially when their environment is being encroached upon by other cultures, as has happened with the Yanomami and essentially all other indigenous peoples. However, it raises the very distinct possibility that Shagnon was perhaps disastrously wrong. An investigative journalist, Patrick Tierney, wrote a very influential book on that topic. Here's Dr. Weiss on just one of the issues raised by Tierney. Patrick Tierney is a journalist and a popular book author. And he took up the Yanomama cause because they were disaffected with what had been done to them by the outside world. And certainly truthfully, that they had been suffering in lots of ways, as most indigenous populations have around the world. And Darkness in El Dorado was a kind of expose about the biomedical and cultural studies that had been done, which said that the portrayal of the Yanomama as violent gave the, among other things, besides being wrong, among other things, led outsiders to believe they were violent, so that when outsiders came into Yanomama territory in the Amazon River Basin, or rainforest, they came in, so to speak, with guns blazing because they were afraid the Yanomama would be these violent, dangerous people. And if they wanted to get minerals from the Yanomama territory and so on, then they assumed they had to shoot first and ask questions later because the Yanomama were so violent. So according to Tierney, Shagnon's portrayal had serious impact on the way the Yanomama were treated by the outside world. Obviously, that's bad. But Shagnon's portrayal of the Yanomami is not the only issue raised by Patrick Tierney's book, Darkness in El Dorado. There are many, many more issues. Tierney also alleged that Shagnon caused the very violence he chronicled. Shagnon would provide Yanomami with machetes and other metal tools in exchange for information. However, these tools were not distributed evenly, either within a village or between villages. 
This, Tierney claims, caused jealousy, tension, and conflict. Tierney also alleged that Shangnan would pay the Yanomami to act out sometimes violent rituals, would bring rival villages into close proximity, and would, on occasion, accidentally knock down buildings within a village with a backdraft from the helicopter Shangnan used to film the Yanomami. And Tierney made many, many more allegations. James Neal did not get away from darkness in El Dorado unscathed either. Quite the contrary. Tierney strongly insinuates that Neil and Shagnon intentionally caused a massive and often fatal measles outbreak so that they could study the effects of the disease on a population with no innate immunity to the disease. In general, Dr. Weiss did not want to weigh in too heavily on the veracity of Tierney's claims regarding Shagnon's behavior. However, he did make two observations. First, Dr. Weiss pointed out that the people who tend to like Shagnon or agree with his philosophy and the results of his work tend to disagree with Tierney's conclusions. Conversely, the people who tend to disagree with Shagnon's philosophies generally agree instead with Tierney. Given this background, it's not surprising that the veracity of Tierney's claims regarding Shagnon's behavior is still a very debatable topic. There is much less debate, however, regarding the veracity of Tierney's allegations against Neil. That's because investigation after investigation has found no evidence for wrongdoing or maliciousness on the part of Dr. Neal or the other biomedical researchers. From the vaccines taken, the distribution methods used, and the notes taken by the researchers themselves, there's essentially no doubt that Neal was trying to stop, not start, a measles epidemic. That does not mean, however, that the samples collected by Dr. Neal and currently housed by Dr. Weiss and others are in the clear. There are a lot of things about sample collection that could have been improper. One of the ones that interested me was informed consent. After all, how do you explain to a population that has never heard of a gene that you want them to donate samples for genetic testing? Here's Dr. Weiss on that topic. What voluntary means in those settings at that time is, is not really clear, but I'm sh- that the outsider, Shagnon and Neil and others, maybe interpreters, explained roughly what they wanted to do. I don't know how they explained it. But then they offered gifts to the group, and then as a group, they had individuals, I would say voluntarily, but in, in these kinds of groups, if you're told by the leader of the group to do this, you're going to do it. Uh, but they, they had blood samples, urine samples, stool samples, medical exams, and so on done in exchange for these gifts with some kind of explanation of what the purpose of this was going to be. Informed consent with all the paperwork and formalities uh, that we have now was not in place at that time. So uh, I can't, and I wasn't there, of course, and I can't comment on exactly what was said to the Indians, but it was clearly voluntary because, in, the, in a proper sense because it was filmed and this was a happy time. You can see that in the filming. Nowadays, you'd have to do a lot more paperwork, but in many isolated populations, the population participates if their local leaders say so. That's their culture. And sometimes you can't ask for writing, written, written informed consent, because they may not read and write, or they may view that kind of thing with suspicion. But that doesn't apply. In those days, these things were collected completely legitimately, openly. There was no secret about them. They were wild, widely, if not wildly, publicized. Nobody complained at that time that there was some kind of unfair uh, lack of informed consent. Informed consent is still, to this day, very difficult. Even Westerners, like you and me, if we had to have surgery and we had to sign an informed consent, we probably wouldn't understand all the things we were signing. And in fact, the person who's informing us of risks and benefits probably doesn't understand what those are because that's why it's research. 
So it's a difficult subject, but there was no improper collection in that sense at the time. So far, we told you why James Neal went in the Amazon to collect these samples and how Ken Weiss and others ended up with these samples. You heard why these samples were controversial, but also that, despite all of the alleged problems with the cultural studies, the biomedical work done by Neal's group was generally appropriately done. So with that background, and with the samples clean of controversy, the obvious question is, what's next for the samples? What research does Dr. Weiss have planned? The, the offenses that were alleged really were not done, but the blood sample had become symbolic or iconic of the outside world having things that should belong to the Yanomami themselves and should be sent back. We're all willing to send them back, but we can't just put them in a box and say, send to Brazil. For many reasons, we don't. somebody who knows the population there has to return these samples in a way that won't cause more problems between rival groups and so on. They have said that the blood samples are to them a, a misappropriation of things because they want to do funereal rites to their ancestors, and so they want to bury or dispose of these blood samples themselves. And because they want to do that, in my opinion, you're, I don't think the samples were improperly collected. The filming of the collection was clear that this was a big party. They were given gifts for these things and so on. But if they want to not be studied, then I think they have a right not to be studied. So we want to return the samples. There are many complications that have arisen. They have to do with how you can ship things that are frozen. They have to do with whether or not they might have microbial contamination that could be viewed as a disease risk for the Indians that they might blame on us. And there are other issues of legal issues of liabilities and so on of transferring the samples, which is why they have not yet been transferred back to Brazil. In other words, there is no more research planned for these samples. Dr. Weiss and the others who have them just want the samples back to the Yanomami. However, as part of that last comment, Dr. Weiss noted that the samples couldn't just be put in a cardboard box and mailed to the Brazilian address. And, in fact, figuring out how to return the samples has taken more than 10 years. Dr. Weiss went into some detail about the problems they've had to overcome. The samples were frozen in the field in liquid nitrogen, very, very cold, to preserve them from spoiling. Now, they were put in little plastic tubes about the size of your small finger, and they, sometimes an air bubble would get in there, and they were frozen. Now, if we bring them back to room temperature too quickly, they can occasionally burst and splatter frozen blood, which immediately thaws, you know, around a certain, around the tube, so anybody handling them will be splattered with blood. So, and also airlines and uh, don't all want to take frozen samples in something like dry ice because because of the possibility that it could burst and maybe that the container could burst and so on. So we found a way to get these samples back more or less so they could be shipped at room temperature. Then, so that took care of one possible problem. That took a couple of years delayed as we tried to work this out with the Brazilian embassy in Washington and they in turn with the government in Brazil. Then Doug Wallace thawed a couple of samples and reported to me that he saw microbes of some sort, he didn't try to identify them, in the samples. And these microbes seemed to be alive and had survived decades, 40 years of freezing. Well, that's not impossible. But once we saw that, we, we realized we cannot send back samples that might have microbes in them when they're at room temperature and take any risk of giving diseases to the Indians, to the Yanomama, especially if they would tell us that we were doing this on purpose because we were mad that they wanted the samples back. So we had to go through, and it's taken a couple of years, ways to try to find methods for 
detoxifying, if I can use that word, making as sure as we can that there's nothing live that could be harmful in these samples. And that there are various ways to do that, but we had to be careful that the samples, with the red blood would still be red, so they wouldn't think we were just sending them back some salt water and so on. And we finally have done that, and Doug Wallace has done it in a different way. And then the lawyers got involved because of all the accusations back and forth, we're going to bring this to the world court and this and that and the other thing to uh, deal with liability issues. We want to transfer these things to the Brazilian government and they want to accept any future liability and we don't want to be liable for anything that happens to the samples afterwards and I can't be liable for things that happened when they were collected because I wasn't involved and so on. And once lawyers get involved, it takes even longer because we're having to work through our lawyers and they're having to work through the embassy, which has to work through the Brazilian government, which has to work through the local state in Brazil where the Yanomama live. And that's taking a long time. Plus, as you may know, Penn State has its own legal issues and is very concerned not to be involved in any more scandals about things that we knew could be problems and didn't address. So everything is taking a long time and people are trying to be very careful. I don't think there are any legal points that should be sticking points. Uh, it's just a matter of getting different countries and different languages to agree to them and sign some document. And then we can just drive these samples down to the Brazilian embassy and, and they'll have them. So to recap, these samples might explode if agitated after being warmed to room temperature. That would spray blood everywhere and it might also spray microbial parasites. Additionally, alleviating these problems while even changing the color of the samples is unwanted because a Chagnon-Tierney combination has poisoned the well to the point where blood samples that aren't red for any reason would be immediately suspicious to some people. And another problem is determining who these samples should be returned to. The actual individuals involved are almost certainly all or almost all deceased. It is the relatives and descendants of these individuals who are requesting the return of the samples. And since these people may be spread between many different and possibly rival villages, incorrectly distributing the samples on return could cause many of the same tensions in the same manner that Tierney claims Shagnon caused. And that's not even getting to the lawyers who, essentially, have to guarantee both that the samples are safe and that, if they aren't, no one will be held liable. Developing and implementing a protocol to safely transfer these samples has taken more than 10 years and a lot of effort. During our interview, Dr. Weiss repeatedly told us that he was happy to return the samples, even eager to. And aside from Dr. Weiss's earnestness, insistence, and reputation, we found one really good reason to believe him. That's right. A former graduate student of Dr. Weiss's was set to publish and defend his thesis when galleys of darkness in El Dorado started circulating and rumors about the contents of the book came out. When these rumors reached him, Dr. Weiss and the graduate student decided that their work, five years of research should not be published. Not because that was the politically correct thing to do or because the samples were improperly obtained, because in Dr. Weiss's view they weren't, but rather because they sincerely believed the Yanomami had the right to withdraw their samples from further study. Tough decision. That must have been difficult for both Dr. Weiss and the graduate student. And there have been a lot of difficulties for Dr. Weiss as a result of his possession of these samples. Were I in Dr. Weiss's shoes, I might be a little bit bitter about how things have happened. I might be a lot bitter. <laughs> we asked Dr. Weiss if he was bitter. I would say, I wouldn't use the word bitterness. I would say that many demagogues in cultural anthropology seized on the book. And as a result, I've been accused of doing all sorts of nefarious things which are totally untrue. In fact, I stopped using the samples as soon as the request for their return was made around 10 years ago or more. And the accusations against those of us who have the, sam the samples were 
were uh, have caused a lot of problems of just wasted time and anxiety because of these accusations, which were not true. And so there were opportunistic attacks. If cultural anthropologists want to attack Shagnon for the way he did his cultural anthropology and, and defend Tierney's book or use Tierney's book or collect other evidence, that's none of my business. It's up to Shagnon to defend whether or not he did proper ethnology and ethnography. And I'm sure it's caused a lot of upset to him, but he's a, he's a scrapper and I, he may like it, I don't know, and his overall reputation is highly mixed. Some people think he's the leading anthropologist of the last half century, cultural anthropologist, and others would say he's the evil cultural anthropologist of the last half century, and I can't get into that. My objections are the way that that we've been characterized by the pressures to return the samples, even though we have not hesitated to try to return the samples and have been dealing with these issues that I've described about how to get them back for basically 10 years. So we had one last question for Dr. Weiss. We asked him, once these samples were returned and destroyed, if scientists were likely to develop a similar set of samples in the future. Here's what Dr. Weiss said about that. I think right now we have enough ways to get DNA samples that anybody who wanted representation of populations would be able to get samples in a much easier way. The samples were connected with very extensive cultural studies. I think it's very, it would be very difficult to find an isolated enough set of populations, 20 or 30 different local populations of the Anamama, for example, to study in any depth with the kind of multiple, multidisciplinary way that was done in the Anamama. So I think that it probably won't be done again, and these kinds of populations are disappearing as civilization creeps into their to their habitats anyway. So I don't think it'll, it'll, they'll be collected again, this kind of data. So while collecting DNA is easier today, the ability to coordinate a massive interdisciplinary study on a number of related and increasingly rare isolated communities makes collecting a similar sample set fairly unlikely. So to all the scientists listening, here's our advice. Do things right the first time. As Dr. Weiss noted, even today, things like informed consent can be problematic, but doing it right can save a lot of time, work, and trouble in the future. And even if you do it right like Neil, you might still have problems. That's all the time we have here today on the Grok Science Show. If you want to hear this episode again or any of the more than 600 past episodes of Grox, you can find archives of our show at, on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, archive.org, or our own website, grox.net. And you can always contact us via Facebook or Twitter. For the Grok Science Show and for Charles Lee, Joanna Rowan, Frank Ling, I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Samantha Thomas. Thanks for listening.